don't want to sign the release, but then he signed it. But he wants to look at the material after the fact to decide if he wants everything. So just in case you know, it's Marie and Marie the last son. Okay. Which it is? Which is the ball. Testing. sort of conceived as being an open conversation without much in the way of any kind of direction. I mean, it's a, most of the conversations are, are incredibly, we found, self-perpetuating. They tend to run right through. So, um, yeah. open and the air conditioning blasting right. as a means to attract customers, right? right. And I think they said you can't do that anymore. But I to, who enforces that? You know, I I find they still do and uh, and I still find it appealing, but I don't, I don't go I don't go in on a hot day. It feels pretty good. Okay. Uh, I think we can get going. I'm Ed Nersesian, the director of the center. Uh, today's program on status was recommended to us and was organized by, I should say, by uh, Anne-Marie Levine 
I'm Darian McMahon, and uh, uh, I'm going to let Anne-Marie introduce the participants. Uh, the associate director, uh, Jerry Horowitz, would sit in at the meeting. Thank you. I guess we shouldn't have programs on beautiful June days. <laughs> um, so I'm going, I'll tell you a little bit about what we're doing and, and then I'll read bios. A recent New York Times article proclaimed status anxiety one of the defining preoccupations of our time. But what are we really anxious about? What, in fact, is status and why do we want it? This Helix discussion will consider that complex question from a variety of different perspectives, historical, psychological, sociological, and biological. Together we hope to generate insights about what it is that so many of us pursue and think we want. So when I read your bios, if you'd raise your hand, then people, people will know who you are. Uh, w. Warner Burke, PhD, is a professor of psychology and education at Teachers College, Columbia University, where he has been since 1979. He teaches leadership and organization change and development. His research focuses on learning agility, multi-rater feedback, and leadership. He has authored, co-authored, edited, and co-edited 21 books and written over 200 articles and book chapters. He has received several Lifetime Achievement Awards and NASA's Public Service Medal. Too many for, for, me, for me to say here. Um, it's on the website, though. Um, James L. Fuller is a research fellow at Columbia University, where he recently completed his PhD. His doctoral research focused on the evolution and expansion of vocal signal repertoires focusing primarily on the communication system of blue monkeys. Dr. Fuller began working on, with wild primates in Kenya in 1995 and has since participated in behavioral and conservation-directed research in Uganda, DR Congo, is that right? Okay. Thailand and Cambodia. In addition, he has been a guest lecturer on the evolution and usage of communication systems in birds and mammals, as well as the sensory systems of vertebrates. David Levine's work uh, encompasses theater, performance, video, and photography. His performance and exhibition work have been presented by the Brooklyn Museum, Creative Time, MoMA, Red Cat, the MCA Chicago, Mass Mocha, PS122, and the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, and has been featured in Art Forum, Freeze, Theater, Bomb, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. His solo exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum, Some of the People, All of the Time, was named one of the 10 best exhibitions globally by The New York Times in 2018. He has also directed operas and plays at Brick House, The Atlantic Theater, Primary Stages, and Soho Rep. His essays in dramatic writing have been published in N Plus One, Theater, Cabinet, Parquet, and Triple Canopy. He is a recipient of a 2018 Guggenheim Fellowship and a 2013 Obie Award, in addition to fellowships from the Radcliffe Institute, the McDowell Colony, and the Foundation for Contemporary Art. 
Best Behavior, an anthology of his critical writings, will be published by the 53rd State Press in 2019. He is professor of the practice of performing theater and media at Harvard University. Darren McMahon is professor of history at Dartmouth College, educated at the University of California, Berkeley, and Yale, where he received his PhD in 1998. McMahon is the author of Enemies of the Enlightenment, Happiness, a History, which has been translated into 12 languages and was awarded Best Books of the Year honors by innumerable uh, publications, and Divine Fury, A History of Genius. He is, he has edited and co-edited many other books and has been a guest professor at many distinguished universities. He has received also major fellowships, many of them. Um, McMahon is currently co-editor at the journal Modern Intellectual History and is at work now on a book about the history of ideas of equality and is writing another about lighting and illumination in the age of enlightenment. Tyresha Poe had to cancel a couple of hours ago, which leads me to say that we did make an effort to try to make the panel more diverse <laughs> in every way, uh, as well as in terms of gender and ethnicity, but were foiled by last minute cancellations and conflicting schedules, etc. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Um, I'm going to go ahead and begin, because this is gathering is my fault, uh, or at least my idea. <clears throat> Anne-Marie mentioned I've, I've been working for the last couple years on a book about equality, history of uh, ideas of equality, and uh, status relates to that. And I thought it might be fun uh, to convene a group of, of, of people to talk about status in the way that we do at Helix in a kind of unhurried way, uh, moving toward wisdom. Status is a, a subject that touches on a whole number of different uh, domains. There's a classic sociological literature on status. Max Weber and Thorstein Veblen and people like that in the 19th century thought a lot about it. But it touches deeply on psychology, um, on human biology and primatology, anthropology, uh, as well as organizational development and, and, um, and marketing. So I thought, wow, this could be, make for a really rich discussion. We had the hardest time convening this group, and Anne-Marie's <laughs> laughing. We've gone back and forth for months, um, and that's why you ended up with a group of you know, white men uh, of a certain age, uh, and uh, we, we tried otherwise, but uh, this is what you get. Um, <clears throat> but it was curious, and it, and it led me to, to you know, wonder why that's the case. And you know, one thing I think is that uh, status is some uh, subject that touches on a lot of different fields, and yet there's not a professor of status at, uh, at Columbia or a historian who studies status. And so people might have been a little bit uncomfortable going outside their, uh, their areas of expertise. But I also think there's something about status uh, and hierarchy uh, that makes people uncomfortable. I think that uh, in this age uh, and in a nominally democratic society whose founding ideal or founding myth, if you prefer, is equality, it makes us a little, little uncomfortable to talk about these things. In fact, there was a special issue of the journal Aeon uh, a number of years ago that raised just this point. 
and a number of distinguished scholars sort of came to the conclusion that we've forgotten how to talk about hierarchy or, or status. And so I think, you know, it's actually a, a timely discussion. And despite whether or not we want to talk about it, uh, we think about it all the time, whether consciously or not. Uh, the, the noted primatologist Franz de Waal um, has pointed out that below the radar of consciousness, we communicate status every time we talk with someone. Robert Sapolsky, equally a noted biologist and, and uh, primatologist, has pointed out that we are intensely interested in and adept at spotting rank difference in status. Our brains are, 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 are incredibly um, uh, good at and exquisitely attuned to detecting status. And all social primates do this. We note uh, body size. We note uh, eye contact. Um, we, we note um, posture. Uh, and that's, that's true of all social primates. And then human beings, in addition to that, are registering things like status, like perceived income, uh, and other cues that uh, give them insight uh, into status. As the, uh, the great anthropologist and, and social psychologist Alan Fisk uh, has pointed out, um, you know, what he calls authority ranking, making distinctions about perceived status, is one of the central ways that human beings um, uh, interact. There are others, but that's one of the four, in his view, principal ways of interacting. And for most people in most, in most times in human history, that wouldn't have been a surprise at all, because until relatively recently, broadly speaking, the long 18th century, uh, inequality was the norm, uh, and hierarchy uh, was the way things were, both uh, economic inequality, but social, political, and legal, meaning that Status was <clears throat> a legal uh, demarcation and a legal distinction. There were different types of human beings, or that was the line. Um, looking at the etymology of the word status is interesting in this respect, and I'm, I'll, I'll stop here just in a moment. The, the word status comes from uh, the, the Latin, it's just a declension of the Latin verb stare, um, which means to stand or to remain in place. Uh, and some of the oldest uses in English of, of the word uh, status are actually uh, reflect this link to the word stature. Uh, so uh, in 16th century English, uh, you could speak about the status of trees, which just meant the height of trees. Or uh, I found a line from the 17th century, the height of a man is status, which is interesting in, in, in a number of connections. But the word is also closely related to the word state or the word estate, right? Uh, as in a, a core or um, uh, a, a, um, a particular rank of society. So the, the French talk about uh, the third estate or the three estates. That prior to uh, the end of the 18th century, again, legally demarcated one's status. You were uh, a slave or a, a free uh, person. You were uh, a peasant or uh, an artisan. And status then was a legal demarcation. Well, since the 18th century, beginning with the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, uh, we've, we've, we've moved away from that uh, type of thinking about status uh, towards what um, the philosopher Jeremy Waldron uh, has called a single status society in which we uh, hold one another to all be uh, equals uh, by nature. And yet clearly status hasn't gone away. Um, and if anything, I think it's become more confusing uh, and this, again, is reflected in 
the, uh, the definition. So the only definition you'll find uh, for status in a, in a kind of quasi-modern way in the 18th century refers to this legality. So here's an 18th century definition from the OED, the fact or position of belonging to a group which is subject to certain legal rights or limitations. So it's the legal classification of a slave or of a child or what have you. In the 19th century, in the early 19th century, that moves to being the rank, position, or standing of a thing, especially with regard to its importance. Okay? But it's no longer clear who determines uh, that importance. And I think uh, that's part of the, the murkiness, but all the interest of, of, of status as we, um, as we think about it moving forward from the 19th century. So with that, and the perfect timing of the music, uh, let me open it up to the, the group to come in and we'll follow the conversation where it leads. Or I'll just keep talking. I have only a couple of thoughts about status. I pronounce it status, not status. I don't know where the hell you're from there. <laughs> Any case. We do not own status. We get status from other people. Yeah. Uh, so we have to really bear that in mind. I don't determine whether I have status or not. It can, I, I can do it to some extent, but it's others that are going to declare it in my case, in everybody's case. So that's important to, to not lose sight of. I don't have that much control over it in many respects. It's whether or not other people think I have status. The other thought is that we desire status, I think most of us do, especially us in academia, that's for sure. Um, and then when we get it, it's sort of different than what we expected. Just a very quick story. I have a colleague. She is the last one of our particular group to not be a full professor. So this past year, she went up for full professor and made it unanimously and not a problem whatsoever and everybody supported it and so on and so forth. Afterwards, I've never seen anybody more depressed. Uh, and she's still, I think to this day, not quite over it. But over it in this particular case means feeling really down. Then I discovered recently that psychologists call something like that a rival fallacy. And that once we get there, it's not what we thought. Mm. <laughs> and that's what she has said to me more than once. It's just not quite what I thought it would be. And so that arrival fallacy means, in the broader sense, now psychologist speaking, we don't do very well about predicting the future, none of us. In fact, there's something called planning fallacy. Can you do this by <coughs> August the 1st? Of course I can. And August the 1st comes up and I have gotten nowhere, you know, with it. I make that mistake all the time, but I'm not unique. Many of us, if not most of us, do that. So we don't, we're not very good at figuring out what's going to happen. We think we know what's going to happen, but when it happens, it rarely is the way we thought it was going to be. And that is particularly true, apparently, about achieving something that we desperately want, and then when we get it, 
it's just not quite what I thought it was going to be. Now, if you tell her I told this story, you, your life will be in danger. So, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's being simulcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't mention any names. So. I didn't mention any names. <laughs> it's interesting, as you were saying that, that, as both of you were speaking, I was kept thinking, well, one of the challenges of this topic in general is the problem with the definition. And what occurs to me is that there's very different uses or perspectives on the same concept and it's, it's relative to the environment or the context yeah. in which we're discussing it. So I think at the most basic level, one can say that one's status could describe one's condition or position uh, and therefore by definition it's relative to something else. Uh, relative to another individual, relative to a some temporal component or something like that. And so what that suggests to me, as this is not my field at all, I can speak so at you, length you, about you, it. You I can do have say whatever freedom, I want. Yes. But what occurs to me is that what one might start by doing is, is delineating different uses of the term or to describe different things. And I think that in our society, in human society, and I, I would imagine of greater interest uh, to this assemblage, is is social status and what that means and 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 I would say that we need a predictive framework you know as as you said we don't know what to expect when we get there and things like that but I think the why we find status and a and a deference to position throughout cultures and throughout societies and to some degree across species is because we need a predictive framework to operate within our social structures. If I don't know what to expect from you behaviorally, and you don't know what to expect from me behaviorally, it's going to make for a very challenging social interaction. And right. status and a, and a recognition and deference to that status. So one might say that, socially speaking, status is really an agreement. There's an agreement that if your status confers upon you certain uh, responsibilities and uh, access to resources, you get that and I agree to let you have that and vice versa. So I think the, the greater issue then comes from how that status is acquired. And I think we see in, in our society and presumably across societies and across history, I don't study humans, I find humans very odd and very confusing. Um, and What if you were a psychologist? <laughs> oh God, it's awful. Congratulations to all of you. Anyway, uh, that I think that we have positions of status that carry with them a certain degree of responsibilities and access to resources and, and permissions that are intrinsic. So one might say that, I assume I, w I didn't measure everyone, but my status as tallest person in this round table is unimpeachable and it's simply an intrinsic fact. Yeah, well, it's starting to change rapidly, <laughs> right? And, and it's irrelevant and so only if that position matters to anyone or has some relevance to some social context do, should we start paying attention to it. But there are intrinsic uh, characteristics that simply are, are part of the individual. And then there, I would say on the polar opposite side of that would be the arbitrarily assigned status ranks, so royalty. You know, people become monarchs with, to some degree, absolute power through absolutely nothing than the, the fortune of their birth. And then there's that middle ground of 
talking about reaching the rank of full professor, which is earned by merit, yet merit alone isn't sufficient. It also requires some external judgment to, to confer that. So I, I think I've sort of lost the thread already. I was hoping someone would interrupt me. Um, <laughs> but the, I think where we go with that is that, uh, to me, social status within modern human culture is only as strong as the degree to which we agree to abide by it. That's right. If the person who is in charge is only in charge because people agree to listen to that person. If we all stop listening right. to that person, that person stops being in charge. Right, and so right. it really speaks to the question of how, how status is achieved or acquired as well as how is it maintained yeah. and enforced. James, I hate to tell you this, but uh -oh. as you age, you're going to get shorter. I'm aging. <laughs> I, that's good. I'll look forward to right. this. Which means, though, that how we confer status is a real measure of our own scale of values, right? So what, what we take to be... I mean, one of the things that came out, I, David, I don't know if you want to come in, but I think this is important, is that there's a distinction, uh, a sharp one sometimes, and less sharp at others, uh, to be drawn between status and power, or status and wealth. And Weber, whom I mentioned before, his classic sort of... Um, tripartite discussion of stratification in society distinguishes between class based on wealth and power by which he meant political or military power actual you know ability to do things and then status or stand he called it um, which is something like prestige and he saw those as as distinct now I think you know there's clearly overlap but there are ways in which in in in, in various economies or regimes um, status and uh, wealth or status and power have nothing to do with one another. Again, we go back to academia, right? Uh, one can have great status in academia and be poor uh, and have no power whatsoever. And in fact, it, it often works that way. It often uh, works. Or one can have great power and great wealth and have very low status. I think of a particular example. He comes to mind. I won't mention him uh, here, but uh, you know, one can imagine that case too: have wealth and power, uh, but have uh, social uh, judgment that's that's largely negative. It's interesting when Darren, you mentioned earlier how there's this there was this movement to have a sort of a one status uh, principle for since the our revolution and the French Revolution, and so I have this image of things there being an attempt to equalize everything, to quiet things down and make everyone on the level, and then the system runs forward and it emerges again. So I guess I'd like to know, what, do we, what causes that? What, is the, hmm. what are the factors that influence the reemergence of, of a hierarchy, let's say, that involves status? I have things to say about that, um, but others do too, I'm sure. Well, there's a biological <clears throat> component I would think someone here might. Nothing in biology that. makes sense. Um, yeah, I would say when, when we find characteristics that appear to be universal and difficult to control through modern human social constructs, it suggests that there must be some underlying uh, biological <laughs> drive in that direction. And, and I, th I think one of the things, I, I think if we hear say the word status one more time, it will lose all meaning. And it, it had little meaning to me when we walked in here, and now it's completely gone out the window. But that's and, good. And um, to me, the, there, and also because I think of status as a very objective, measurable 
defined as condition or state, uh, the state of things. And right. therefore, when we talk about equality, there is no, there is, I don't think equality and absence of status are, are connected with one another. Rank or hierarchy is perhaps the better way of thinking about yeah. it. But I know that just linguistically we tend to conflate things. But so in, in non-human primates, there is almost across species, there is often seen some type of ranking. And that ranking is ordered by researchers. We observe things. So we are trying to make sense of an observed pattern. So the, the fact that one might recognize the alpha male of a group of chimpanzees by his behavior and by the behavior that is shown towards him and by his access to mates and his access to food resources, that doesn't suggest that he has some sort of conferred upon him status or rank. It's our way of measuring and describing a pattern. Whereas in human society, if you were to grant me a rank right now, I would be no different than I was a minute ago, but suddenly I would have power, influence, access to resources that I didn't have, and yet I would no, not be any different. So I think that one of the biggest differences that we see in, in humans and non-humans is that the, the ranking, the hierarchy, and the differential access to resources that we see in non-humans tends to be associated with some measurable attribute, physical strength, ability to uh, form coalitions uh, to some degree, some cognitive ability or cleverness and things like that. But, that's a, but those are attributes that are relevant to that position. Whereas we have seen monarchs throughout the ages who have zero physical or cognitive capabilities that suggest they are better positioned to be in that position and yet they have been conferred upon. So I think that's, I think, Again, lost the thread, sorry. Uh, but I do think that what you were suggesting is that I think we have a, a built-in, hardwired, genetically predisposed uh, hunger for hierarchy, hunger for recognition of rank differences that allow us to have a predictive framework so that we can interact. And as we socially move forward and say, no, 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 we should all be equal, we shouldn't have status, yet that hunger allows us or, or, or keeps driving us to say, ah, I see differences, let's rank those differences as opposed to say, you're different, we're different, but we don't, we are not uh, ranked in any sort of hierarchical or ordinal way. And we can use any variety of criteria to establish those differences. And of course, every society does, right? Uh, an ancient Mayan, you know, the, the nobility had flat heads. So, you know, having a, a less oval head was a sign of status. Um, I love to point out as, as somebody who loves books that, um, you know, in the early modern period, books were very expensive. Uh, and so books were a sign of prestige. You had libraries the way that people now have uh, art collections to confer uh, wealth and status. So the criteria by which we make these um, uh, distinctions change, and it changes, I think, quite dramatically uh, in, in the 18th century, uh, where uh, those distinctions go from being based upon, quote unquote, blood, uh, to ostensibly at least being uh, based uh, on merit, uh, which becomes a new kind of standard to draw hierarchies, although they're all, all, 
obviously all kinds of problems with that. I wanted to go back to something you said, James, and just to, to ask, um, because where you went towards the end there about the kind of genetic predisposition, I mean, it's, it's clearly not irrelevant that, um, that we share, what, 98.5% of our DNA with, with bonobos and chimpanzees, mm -hmm. which both bonobos less so uh, are intensely hierarchical mm -hmm. uh, creatures. Uh, I, I think that that's something that we just need to kind of take in. But you, you said something to the effect that, um, that a, a status hierarchy among chimpanzees and, and the identification of an alpha male doesn't confer status or status, and I suppose it depends what we mean, but it certainly confers access to resources, right? Uh, and, and, and on some level, that's what status is. Right. That, exactly, and I think it, it, it gets circular and semantic to the point of becoming very uninteresting, but to me, in a very simplified way, I think a, a big distinction is the, the directionality. When I look at a group of let's say blue monkeys, because that's a species that I study carefully. What you do a lot. When I, when I look at a group of blue monkeys, I don't decide who's in charge and then confer upon them access to resources and access but to food. But the foods. group does, right? The group of blue monkeys does. It exists. This is the great thing about being a very objective scientist. You can always say, I have no judgment, I have no evaluation, or so no, no uh, kind of uh, value judgment simply observing patterns. The pattern is that this animal has right of access to food prior to the others. This animal uh, is given more deferential grooming, things like that. And so we, we recognize behavior, and from that behavior, we organize things into some sort of rank position. Whereas I think in, in, in human society, it, it might go the opposite direction which is that we, one might be interacting quite equally with one another, and as soon as I mention the fact that I actually, be, actually am the crown prince of Monaco, behavior will change. Mm. So it has nothing to do with how the behaviors sort of naturally play out and how one acts in a certain way, in that, that the arbitrary and to some degree externally assigned rank or status changes behavior. Whereas I think when we look at, mm. at, at non-human species, we don't actually know what's going on, despite the fact that everyone who writes things says we know what's going on. What we can say is the patterns observed appear to function this way, which is that there appears to be a hierarchy. There appears that some animals enjoy a greater access to resources, greater access to mates. Some animals receive more aggression, other animals don't, things like that. And so that suggests that this hierarchy exists. The question is, how is it achieved? How is it assigned? How, it, how does it uh, come about? Whereas, and, and so that, that's, I would say that the, the biggest difference is that there's a directionality there in that. Well, you wouldn't expect to find the rival fallacy among blue monkeys. I wouldn't look for it, but yeah. It sounds like much more of a human sort of response to whatever is causing this hierarchy to develop. Right? Monkeys might not have that sort of response. I mean, maybe they could, but it would be interesting to, to figure that sort of thing out. I would guess it's mostly a human thing that we can respond to an announcement. You've just become the you know, crown prince of Monaco, so we're all going to bow to you now. No, I mean, that's a difference between that and monkeys, right? Probably. Yeah. Probably. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, I, I don't want to go down the, the rabbit hole, but 
But as is, <laughs> there you go. The monkey, monkey hole, right? <laughs> but it's a different mean, thing. Jane Goodall, Christopher Bohm, Franz Duvall's would all argue that there's a kind of self-conscious politics in the group of uh, higher primates, right? So that, that status is on some level conferred and alliances are formed and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sensing you're skeptical to that, but that, and that, that's fine. But, uh, I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm always skeptical of, of attributing human right. cognitive patterns to, I, I'm actually skeptical of attributing it to other humans. I can barely figure out how I think, I let alone certainly don't want to assume how others think. But I, I'm very uh, supportive of people whose work suggests certain types of, of uh, thought processes, but to me, the behavioral patterns alone are sufficient to understand some sort of evolutionary trajectory. Um, I, I think that at the end of the day, the, as, as humans, we very much, uh, we put so much emphasis on our intellect and so much emphasis on our, our cognitive abilities to plan and to plan 17 steps ahead that we make assumptions that anything that has occurred must be the result of that sort of directed, I would like to be full professor, so I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to kiss up to my chair, and then I'm going to publish that. We have these things. So when we see patterns in non-humans, the formation of coalitions, um, and the uh, more grooming to higher ranking individuals, there's this assumption that it must be on some level through a conscious understanding that mm -hmm. if I groom you more often, you will be more likely to support me in an alliance later when we overthrow the alpha male and all of those other things. And it might be working that way, but to me, right. whether there is a conscious awareness or not, that pattern seems to be existing. There's some mechanism for maintaining it. I would, I would bet, but I don't know, I would bet that that mechanism for maintaining those hierarchies is much less complicated than it is in, in human society. No question. Uh, and, and I would bet that those, the mechanisms that maintain those ranks are much more related to physicality. Uh, not necessarily just physical strength, although that's a huge part of it, but physicality in terms of access to food, access to breeding grounds, access to sleeping grounds, all of the things that matter. And we live in a society, you talked about a lot of things that to me are less about status or rank as much as they are about symbols of that. In that we have, a, you, talked about, symbols. you talked about things that by definition were very um, familiar to perhaps everyone in this room, you know, books. There are huge groups of people for whom books are not only not a, a symbol of high status, they're a symbol of, of wasted efforts. Oh, and they're time. not anymore. But, but I was talking about an earlier period in but, human history, right? But, but, it, but that yeah. period of human yeah. history was also a, a relatively uh, narrow part of global <clears throat> human culture. Um, there were times and places in which, at the same time period within the 18th and 19th century, in which groups, large groups of highly complex civilized societies did not place the same value on intellect or religion or money or food. You know, all of these sure. things. A warrior get society would right. honor people who have scars right. who you know and, attain and, them in battle, right? Right. So, so yeah. I think to kind of get to your point, which is that I my sense is that if we see the same structural attempts to 
identify, acknowledge, maintain, and obey this ranking hierarchical system so that we can have a predictive framework. Mm -hmm. That suggests that's more or less universal or it's somehow hardwired into our, our DNA or how we interact. I think then all that really changes is that you know, this year it was shoes, last year it was iPods, and next year it'll be something else. But we're the, the, at the end of the day, it's the, the structure is the same. We're just finding very different ways of doing it. Uh, there, there are people in the audience dying to ask questions, but they're going to have to hold off for it a little bit longer, and then we'll, uh, we'll, come, we'll come in. I mean, James and I could go back and forth all day. I don't want to monopolize if other people want to come in the conversation. Uh, Dave. I mean, but one, one thing you're, one thing you're I mean, we, humans are the species that, do, that make status reads constantly, and especially like humans in cities, right? So part of it's also the attribution, you know, and I, I'm, I'm more interested in, I mean, I, I believe more in the attribution of status than I do in actual status, but I think that, you know, one thing you're suggesting is also that, you know, these, like, groups of, like, chimpanzees, they live in, you know, they live in, like, clans or groups, and that's, you know, so status attributions remain relatively, I mean, relatively stable throughout the lifetime of a particular group, right? I mean, I, I, but basically what, I'm, what, what it makes me, I mean, I, I pretty much agree with you that it doesn't make any sense to ascribe our motivations or our patterns, you know, it doesn't make any sense to ascribe human impulses at all to anything but human, if, if even humans. Um, but I think also I, w I would wonder, you know, if, you, if, if you're a city dweller, you're reading situations like, like constantly, like from you know, from the moment you from the moment you step out the door to the moment you get home, you know, you're forced to make a million different reads. And I wonder if it makes sense to think about status or the activity of attributing status, you know, relative to symbols and all these kind of other things yeah. that you encounter, like whether you know, like say, you know, in a small town, like in a small, you know, in a Balzac kind of town, mm -hmm. like you know, how static, how static would how static would static attributions have been right. in like an 18th century village, you know, in France, and would that have been like, and would that have been more, would that have been based off a simpler set right. of attributes? Right. Rather and, than and of course these things can overlap, right? So, um, you know, examples used of uh, a janitor working in a, in a large corporation, you know, on some measure, low status position, but that same janitor might be the captain of the softball team, uh, who uh, in, then in that realm has very high status, and of course these things can overlap at, at, at every measure, uh, and, and, and which goes to James' point that uh, when you scale up to human societies, these, these things become tremendously more complex because they're not just about re uh, resource acquisition, which with primates is essentially the, the end of the story, right? Where we're, we want all kinds of uh, things. Uh, in addition uh, t to that, right? Include, include, <laughs> including, well, I, I think so. Uh, we want um, recognition, right? We want um, admiration. I mean, I think this is, on some level, um, uh, a, a basic human drive. Um, and, you know, I, I'm an 18th century scholar, and so I'm always going back to my 18th century thinkers, and one of my favorite is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And Rousseau says that we have this 
propensity for what he calls amor propre, for self-love that gets activated in certain situations. And it really is the desire for um, recognition, but that desire gets translated very quickly in not just the desire for recognition, but the desire to put down others. So that our own desire to be recognized, and if we think about this in a meritocracy, it becomes very interesting, becomes at the same time desire to put down others. And so a competitive society in some ways are you know, composed of people searching for um, recognition, but at the same time uh, creating losers and, uh, uh, and lesser thans uh, in the process. And that, that gets really complicated and problematic, right? Yeah, and I would say that I, I don't disagree that, that in human culture and human society we want lots of things that don't relate directly to things like food and shelter and reproduction. I would argue that, that, or I would at least posit that the idea that it's universal suggests some biological underpinning, and the biological underpinning would have to be built, and not to keep reducing everything to sex and food, but that's how evolution works. Mm. You know? and, and so the, having the shiny object doesn't help you unless having that shiny object increases your probability of reproducing or having food long enough to survive so that you can reproduce. So I, I would say that the things that we do in our modern society, we have poetry and, and, and art and fast cars and monstrosity large buildings and all of these things, on some level, I think that the drive towards those things is related to the drive towards access to resources. And so I, I think to get to your point about um, um, uh, why is it that we constantly are seeking uh, positive feedback from others? Why do we want to be loved so much? If we want to reduce that to some biologically explainable relevance, that it would relate to uh, alliance formation, coalition formation, and that, that sociality is odd. We think of sociality as normal because as humans we're social uh, and we look around at the animals that we think are interesting and we, they happen to be social. But if you look across the animal kingdom, it's actually a quite rare occurrence mm. and, it's, and it's very challenging to maintain because hanging out with a bunch of other animals that are doing the exact same thing you are and want the same stuff you do is going to create all sorts of opportunities for aggression and competition and disease transfer and all horrible things going wrong. So to me, I think sociality is a mechanism for allowing us to stay together. And so things like a, a acknowledgement or recognition of hierarchical uh, preferences and, and status and things like that is, is not so much of interest in and of itself as much as it's a tool because it, without it we would all just be stabbing each other in the face and, and we wouldn't get any of the benefits of, of social living. So, the, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I was yeah. just saying there's this implication that humans have sort of taken it to a new level and even as sort of David just mentioned there, there seems to perhaps even be a difference between you know, rural, not city dweller type individuals where their status and a number of signs that they take to indicate status may be a little bit simpler. And maybe I'm being, maybe I just don't know what it's like to live there. But I, 
it seems to me it's a compelling way to describe things, whereas now in our sort of urban setting, there are these myriad different signals you might get that might confer status, and it can actually mm. be confusing. Um, it's, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the classic essay by Clifford Geertz, the great uh, uh, anthropologist, uh, notes on a Balinese cockfight. Uh, and he's uh, an anthropologist in Bali observing a cockfight, which is a major social um, uh, event. And he likens it to the complexity of watching a Shakespeare play. Uh, and the reads that people are making, just like David's referring on the streets of Brooklyn, where you're suddenly, you know, calculating this, that, or the other, probably going back to resource acquisition, sex certainly on the streets, right, uh, are as complicated in that setting as they are uh, on the streets of New York. Now, I mean, that's neither here nor there, but it is interesting. And again, I think it's this this human pension capacity to constantly judge status, which I should say is not only just about, um, I think, you know, we're, we're tending to think of the, the kind of negative side, but um, there's a way in which status is conferred uh, frequently for social reasons for positive benefits, right? So you think of the, uh, I was just reading actually a wonderful book, shout out to uh, Dr. Keltner's The Power Paradox, who's at, uh, uh, in, in psychology at Berkeley. Um, and he has a little section on status, and he starts with a discussion of Inuit uh, peoples uh, who share, uh, share food, share seals. And great status is conferred upon seal hunters uh, who bring more food to the group, right? Status is conferred on professors who uh, have, you know, 50-odd uh, PhD students uh, and, and, and act selflessly throughout their careers for the help of others. Status is conferred on uh, people who give uh, large amounts of time and, and resources to uh, the Met or what have you. And so status is that positive social conferral uh, that grants, as you say, privilege and, and, and uh, access, uh, but also does things to um, sort of support uh, values that reaffirm the, the benefit of, uh, of the group. We like to have these kind of high-status individuals because they help us, right? Let me remind us, too, that i got to speak for psychology, for heaven's sake, <laughs> that in our introductory course in psychology, we were taught that Maslow said <laughs> that ego status is a fundamental need and that right. we do have the need for status. We do have the need for assuaging our ego and so forth, and it's a basic fundamental need. It's a hierarchical one, he said, which, by the way, evidence does not support, um, but never mind about that. Uh, evidence does support that we do have ego status kind of needs, mm. fundamental. Is that a, a cause of the, uh, the development of hierarchies, or is that a consequence? consequence yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Ask Abraham is that he's gone. Psychologists can never answer those kind of questions, as you know. It's correlated. But, uh. Well, it's interesting because if you take this notion that you cannot draw clear-cut um, conclusions about this from uh, animal studies, you don't know exactly, well, what are the uh, progenitors of uh, our drive to status? Um, it leaves open the question because, you don't. again, we don't think of monkeys whatsoever, it seems to me, as wanting to be told they're fantastic, right? That's not an mm. issue. Whereas <laughs> you, you just finished saying, and I agree with you, humans love to hear that. So, so the question is, well, is that just our version of grooming? Right. Which I think mm -hmm. what Robin Dunbar sort of promotes yeah. that idea, right? It's an extension Stroking. of grooming yeah, behavior. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. 
I don't know. <laughs> the first thing that pops to mind as, as, a, as an analogy is that you know, sugar, from an evolutionary perspective, you know, sugar is killing humans right now. Mm. It's, it's, it's going to be the death of a massive portion of our population. It is a biologically driven yeah. desire, and that biologically des uh, driven desire has very simple to recognize evolutionary history. You know, that, that having a sweet tooth, having a desire yeah. and a, a positive feedback from eating sweets is a great way to survive. If you're, in the, if you're in the woods and you desire fruit more than others, you're going to go after fruit, you're going to get that rapid carbohydrate rush, you're going to get large amounts of energy, you're going to survive longer, breed more, pass that on to your offspring. So the idea that, that the, the desire for sugar, the fact that sugar is a pleasant uh, thing for humans is not good or bad. It's, it just makes sense. The fact that current technology and social structure and access to resources has made it such that that biological underpinning is being used to great detriment to all of us as a society, I think those can be looked at separately and as a related cons cons consequence. So one might suggest that, that this n biological drive for a predictive framework, if we're going to be interacting with individuals regularly, there has to be some system for organizing us. Who's in charge? Who's not in charge? How do we get to be mm. in charge? All of those things allows us to get through the day without completely falling apart. That basic biological underpinning sets the stage then for all sorts of horrible abuse. But, that's a but I don't think that those two are in conflict with one another. Just because humans are doing odd things with it doesn't mean that it's still not based on the same um, evolutionary foundation that we see in other species. And I happen to... Uh, this morning, look at a talk you gave on, on false crowds oh, along yeah. those lines. And what occurred to me in that was that, that how one achieves status suggest, is seen, if you look at some non-human primate examples, some, some status, especially in, in female-oriented species, their status tends to be matrilineal. It's, in, it's inherited. So it's irrelevant whether you're limping and, and funny looking, if your mother was high ranking, you might be high ranking. But in many cases, especially multi-male species, the ranking of the male depends on how well you form a coalition, as well as how strong you are. So you might be very strong, but there's nothing you can do against seven. So a coalition of seven is better than being strong. So the ability to convince others that you matter and that's the thing at the end of the day. It's not even saying mm. that I have these attributes, I have these capacities, I have these skills that I will provide for all of you. If, if I convince you to say I'm interesting, that might suggest to these other people that I might be interesting. And suddenly, by the end of the day, everyone thinks I'm interesting regardless of the fact that I'm, I'm completely dull. And so I think that the, the notion of, of why false crowds exist and why, why we tend to... why people who are popular tend to get more popular. You know, like, oh, that movie did really well this weekend, let's go see it next weekend. You know, there's this kind of, this appeal of, of coalitions, and I think the manipulation of that is what we see in modern human society that is a, 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 a use of some underpinning yeah. and some underlying biological reality.
explain false crowds? Oh, it's it's pretty tangential. To the, I, mean, I mean, I see what you're saying. It's just you know, um, like like hired protesters or hired ralliers or hired entourages or you know hired political supporters. Hired, yeah, hired political supporters. You know, I mean, paying, yeah. Thank you. Well, it reminds me uh, this very pregnant topic of populism, which is somewhat of an. A, a, you know what a rebellion against the elite and uh, I have to say I, I have to relate you may have all seen this but um, you mentioned earlier Darren that people can notice the way people walk and their stature and their behavior but there was what I consider it's absolutely hysterical brief video of our president in England with the guards with the big furry hats it's like a Charlie Chaplin shot I mean, or it looks like a monkey looking under, like his behavior was so discordant with what you'd expect the president of a major country would be doing, because he just seemed to be interacting in a very different way. Interesting that that gives many of us a reason to be, um, oh, I may, oh, it went out, sorry, yeah. thank you. Um, it gives many of us a reason to be sort of disparaging of him. I think that's well deserved, but for others, it's a signal that we want to rally around him because mm. he's the kind of guy that that, uh, that I know or, and like. I thought James said something really interesting about sugar, um, and <clears throat> you know, uh, a kind of whole food industry that exploits that underlying basic kind of uh, genetic or uh, evolutionary drive. The same, of course, is true with. Uh, social media, um, which is very much like the grooming, you know, the, the likes that you get on Twitter or Facebook uh, give you that dopamine rush um, that sugar does. Uh, and um, that points to the fact that, you know, there, there are a lot of very clever people in our society uh, who think about status more than we do. Uh, and they think about the, all the signaling that goes on, uh, and they think about how to signal it, right? Uh, and, um, and, you know, in some ways, tap into or, or draw on, or one might in a harsher tone say exploit, uh, that capacity that we have to make these fine-grained uh, distinctions all the time. I mean, in some ways, that's what drives marketing, right? Uh, uh, I, have a, I have a friend who uh, markets um, um, drinks, uh, sports drinks, um, and he's very clever, and um, I never knew that the marketing of sports drinks was so interesting. We had a conversation, but he told me what for what something that what for people in the industry is second nature that you know when you market today now you don't market a product you market a lifestyle uh, and the lifestyle is all about status signaling clearly yeah but I think what's kind of I mean what I find kind of exquisite about people right is that you are exquisite about how we do status is that you you can't you know you you can't be seen to be too thirsty <laughs> for it, right? So you, I mean, but it's weird, but that, that idea that, you know, so if you're, if you're trying to get a lot of people to like you, or if you're trying to, you know, within the arts, if you're, it would be poor form. It would be poor form to advocate too, for, well, it's okay if you advocate absolutely ferociously for yourself, if you're like absolutely psychotic about it, because that's, that's intense, so that's cool. But, <laughs> but otherwise you have to make it seem 
effortless, right? Which is to say, you know, or like classic kind of, you know, like Richard III kind of, you know, you whisper to somebody else to somebody else and you know, then, then it'll be by acclamation, it's fine, but you can't, you know, you, you can't, so basically the idea mm. is either, the, the idea is, you know, kind of, and maybe this is where we got our understanding, this, maybe this is what we were modeling our understanding of primates on, but you know, the idea is either you're like, you want it so bad and you finally got it, like a Britney Spears kind of model, which would have been, which would have been really just about physical vigor, like, you know, you know, or Lady Gaga even better, like you just, you wanted it, you wanted it, you wanted it, you fought for it, you fought for it, you fought for it. Um, so that's just physical strength. Alternately, you know, it just, it just kind of, it just kind of found you because you're magically, divinely awesome, right? Which would be, which, which would be kind of an aristocratic, you know, you, like you, you were you were innately deserving, mm. um, right. but you can't. But the the kind of push and pull of like, you know, again in a room, like who's seen to be too thirsty, or the way you'll, you know, the way really washed up, really like triply washed up, kind of, you know, former celebrities, you know, generally their last rung, the, their last tragedy will almost always be read as a desperate bid for attention, mm. just to say. There's something very, there's something very cruel in how we, right. in how we do this because we, we want clear status reads, but we also really want to punish people for behaving as though they want it too much. Right. It's like cool in that respect, so, you know, or celebrity too. It, it is cool. I mean, yeah, basically, yeah. you know. But I think all of that, to me, draws a line between two different, at least two, if not twenty-seven, different. Uh, ways of as, of ascribing and assigning these ranks or these these hierarchies or or this sense of status or some privileged position within society and I think if you were to use the same way of dissecting the sports world I'm sure I don't pay that much attention to sports but I'm sure there are issues of people who want it too much and we don't like their personalities but at the end of the day if you run faster than everyone mm. else you win right as long as you didn't cheat and do other things like that. And so it's, it's about physical capacity that is not subjective, hopefully not subjectively viewed. If you run faster than everyone else in the race, you are the winner, you get the hat, and you are given the status of fastest runner. Whereas... But you may not get the endorsements, interestingly. Right. I mean, right. Right. to bring right. in that... Right. But, but so within context, exactly. And so when we shift yeah. into a different context, the arts is almost by definition subjective. And so the fact that you know, Van Gogh was not appreciated in his lifetime and now is appreciated, the paintings didn't change. So the, the, and the, to some degree, the way we measure things didn't change. It's just the, the fashion changed, the appreciation changed. And so that's where I think that the, when status can be assigned, if, if status can be assigned simply based on the subjective will of the crowds, then that status is, by definition, um, tenuous mm. and will shift. The minute you say something we don't like, you no longer have that status. But, it's also, but it's, it also makes those situations kind of ripe for exploitation yeah. or, you know, or, or just a million varieties of me tooing because you, you, know, you can dangle. No one knows how to get status. I mean, there's people who have authority and they can confer it. But right. what it means is you can, you know, you can, you can, 
you can dangle all kinds of promises that you will be able to mm -hmm. like impart some status after you know after this or after that, and mm -hmm. no one's to say. I mean, this is this is. This is, uh, I mean, this is the Avital Renell thing. This is, you know, this is, I mean, in, in academia as well. It's, you know, there's just sure. dangling, 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 mm -hmm. because it doesn't sit still. Because it's not, it's not athletics. You're not Kawhi right. Leonard. You're not right. Like, which, which actually, sort of circles back to what you were saying, but almost in the reverse direction. Which is that I think, as much as we've been talking about the individual's desire to achieve status, I think there's also a really strong desire to assign status or recognize status in others. And so it's sort of I, as much as I want to um, achieve some high rank because I assume that that will make me feel better and I'll be a better dancer and all the other things that come with that. There's also I want the person in charge and I want someone else to tell me how to dress and I want someone else to tell me which music to listen to. And then we are, and so in the same way that we're disappointed when we achieve a status, we, we also tend to be disappointed when someone else gets that status. And so we want someone else to get it the next time. And, and there's this constant shifting of like, of, of, I promise you all this, now you've put me in charge. And either I'm not delivering or I am delivering and you say you don't want it anymore. But at the end of the day, now we have to change. We, it's a constantly shifting uh, set of, of targets, both for the, the individual, and that's what I think. I, to me, it just goes back to that status is an agreement. It's a, it's, a, it's a recognition of expectations of behavior and actions, both on the part of the individual that we're focused on as the subject of the status, as well as the individuals interacting with that person. And, it, it, and I think it, that reality, I think, is hardwired into us. The mechanisms by which it's assigned and maintained, I think, are, are shifting and constantly shifting, which is why culturally and historically what we see today and what we see 200 years from now or 200 years ago will look differently in terms of what the materials are, but the structure and the patterns will probably always mm. be the same. Mm. Several years ago, uh, three, four years ago, MoMA, Museum of Modern Art, had this <clears throat> social network analysis picture, so to speak, of <clears throat> that was done in the 1920s to 1930s, and who among the artistic world was connected with whom. That's what a social analysis network is all about, who relates with whom according to what question you ask and so forth. Right? Smack in the middle of that social network analysis was who? Not Van Gogh. <laughs> Picasso. Uh, <clears throat> and he was the most high-status person in the mm. artist world, you might argue, based on a social network analysis, which is somewhat independent. Mm. Of, uh, anyway, it was fascinating. Yeah. I, I bought a replica of it hanging on my wall <laughs> in my office <laughs> to remind me to network. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, one of the people who um, couldn't be here today but would have liked to have been was um, uh, a colleague of mine at, at Dartmouth who's a social psychologist and She's done really, Talia Wheatley is her name, doing really interesting work on um, monitoring how groups interact in real time. So uh, an example is a uh, orientation kind of cocktail reception for entering Tuck Business School uh, people. And you can watch and measure 
and this, you know this kind of analysis, right? How much time, who's getting sure. the most time, how quick the conversations are and whatnot. And this becomes a way in some, some level of, of measuring this highly fluctuating uh, thing that we call status. I mean, I was, as, as you both were speaking, I was thinking, this, and David too, that you know, it'd be really cool if you could have a stock market of status, right? And it would be constantly <laughs> moving around and you would drop two points today and go up two points tomorrow and then eventually fall off the chart altogether. But uh, uh, that's what makes it so that is, complex. That is what? That, I mean, yeah. there was there was an app that was oh, really? kind of, Interesting. Uh, they, no, they tried to, they, <laughs> no, they tried to launch it a few years ago where you could where you could basically rate people on anything you wanted, and right. the Chinese have have certain like social media metrics like that too, where you. But the idea was you're basically creating a market for a market for approval or wow. a market yeah. for status. Yeah. Or you know, there's a Black Mirror episode yeah. about this that's oh, really? absolutely okay. amazing. It's yeah. one of the you agree. I think yeah. it's one of the best ever. Yeah. Where everyone's constantly rating. I give you three stars. Oh, you, you, you rate every three point five stars. That, and oh, that's and it's very well. Black done. I gotta watch that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this idea that status sort of crystallized, it's almost like a, a traffic controlling mechanism, and it kind of co crystallizes from that in some way. Does that resonate with the rest of you? It, it allows us, it facilitates human interaction, right? Uh, it's, um, yeah, it's one of the many mechanisms by which, and I, I don't want to be repetitive, but I think there's a, within a socially interacting group, within any interacting group, uh, there has to be a measure of predictability. Mm -hmm. And so for me to approach you, I need to be able to, on some level, weigh the probability that this is gonna end poorly for one of us and, and, or, and what the benefits are and things like that. And so I think without anything else to go on, we don't interact. And so that, that recognition of, expectations and predictability is built into our, our social needs. Uh, I, think that, I think one difference though is that, or one thing that I notice when we're talking about humans and talking about that sort of shifting uh, stock of, of social status is that it, it's, it's so faith-based in that not, sorry, I don't mean to be alluding to religion, meaning that it is, <coughs> founded in a belief that other people's opinions matter. Um, whereas if I am going to get behind the strongest chimp, as long as my ability to assess physical strength, then it doesn't matter what others think, I'm gonna be backing the right chimp. Whereas if I want to be backing the person that's going to be in charge, it's less about that individual and much and more it is about what other people are doing. And Bitcoin is a great example. Mm. Bitcoin is a phenomenally invented, <coughs> nonsensical idea that is now a billion dollar industry. That if I say this is worth a billion dollars, it doesn't matter that I say that. But if the rest of you say it, then suddenly there's some value to it. So in the same way that if, if, if somebody says, hey, I'm very interesting online, and then someone else says, you're right, and then 10 more people do it, suddenly we have, uh, it, it sort of feeds on itself. But if people stop saying that, then it stops being of, uh, of value. I'm just sort of thinking out loud, but it'd be interesting to, to think about the differences that happen when you, when you make the scalar move from actual human interaction where status, as I say, clearly in a group evolutionary sense, would also confer value on people that did things of benefit to the group, whereas in a, a virtual network, 
it's not clear that you get things by assigning status to others, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that distorts uh, in its own way. I don't know, David, maybe you have thoughts about that, but um, it's, it's a different economy somewhat. We, we um, haven't addressed this other, especially because we're all, we're everyone in the panel, I'm not actually on the panel. Remember, oh, no. You're all white males. Uh, the idea of privilege and, um, and I was going to raise the interesting, I think interesting observation that there are some cultures where the status really seems to be really baked into it, like I'm thinking about the caste system in, in Hinduism. Mm -hmm. And I guess the, the, the way I would view it, not in, really, not in the least bit being an expert on that area, but based a little bit on what everyone's saying here, my thinking is that that's a system that once it, was, uh, once it got into place, it was very much self-perpetuating. It sort of maintained its own structure and maybe why it was so strict and, and precise and, and how it's persisted for so long, right? Whereas the systems we're thinking about in our current culture are a lot, lot more fluid and loose may even be creating some anxiety just because they are fluid and loose. Um, but privilege is another example of how people who do, once they get into some position of power, work to maintain it. So I was just wondering if people have thoughts about that. Yeah, I think it's hugely important. And again, you know, this makes for the murkiness in some ways of discussion in the post-18th century where we moved away in the West, broadly conceived, uh, from that clearly stratified, legally stratified um, society. I mean, you mentioned privilege. I was, you know, love to point out to my students that the, the root of privilege is pre-wislex, private law. Um, and so you think of a, of a, of a, a classically um, a state-ordered, or not caste, but a, an ordered society like old regime France, um, law was conferred by the crown to, um, to core, to corporations. Um, according to who they were, right? So as a noble, you had certain private laws, right? Right to, to go to a different court and to, uh, uh, to be exonerated from certain kinds of taxes and so on and so forth, in the same way that the uh, 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 milliners had as a core, a body, uh, certain private laws. So privilege was all about dis distinct laws, right? Ostensibly, we've, we, we hold to a view of the equality before the law, and gotten rid of that kind of stratified society. And yet at the same time, I think because for reasons that we've started to talk about, I mean, there's no society, you can't, I think what's the number, something like 50, you get 50, 50 people together uh, and communal sharing goes out the window and you get, you get some kind of hierarchies. And they're good hierarchies and they're bad hierarchies, right? Uh, and the question is, you know, are the, the hierarchies that are forming uh, in 21st century America, um, ones that we want, that we're conferring for good reasons, or ones that are more like the older kind that you're uh, referring to, um, that, that are sedimented, um, that, that have kind of structural support uh, and, uh, and underpinnings. And I think it's a little bit of both. No one, this is why no one wanted to come to the panel, right? <laughs> it's a lot, to, a lot to dive into. Well, I think, I think your point, at least it touches on something I was thinking about, that, that if, if hierarchical organization is just some natural reality, it's going to happen, or at least it's likely to happen. And as you point out, it's very difficult to avoid. So even in, in times, please. Interrupt you, Jeff. Please right do, there. thank goodness. 
who knows where Apparently, I was going. Apparently, the one universal about all organizations of all times and around the world is hard. And that, so, right, which suggests it it's, might not even just be a biological reality. It might even just be some sort of you know, physical or yeah. mathematical right. reality. So it, it exists. And I think there's also a big issue where, again, semantics, when we talk about equality, equality, when we talk about equality in, in society, I don't think anyone is suggesting that all individuals are the same. That's, so equality and, and similarities are not the same. So we're really talking about equal access or equal treatment as opposed to um, you know, the equality equal of the status yeah. right. in that, that my condition of being a rapidly aging white male is different than someone else's condition of being a young Hispanic female. All of those things are relevant in some context. But that's not what we're talking about, mm -hmm. quality, about trying to avoid dissimilarities. Off track, off topic, your point uh, was that, to me, it suggests that if these hierarchies are some naturally occurring system, that there's going to be a hierarchy, there's going to be a ranking. But the mechanisms by which those hierarchies are maintained and the means by which one ascends to the higher ranks, those things are changing. Who sets them? And I would say it's probably pretty obvious that the people who set them are the people in charge. There are, you know, the untouchables were not saying, you know what's great about this caste system is that the Brahmas are up here and we should <laughs> know what, the Brahmas were the one who were setting the caste system. And so in the same way is that the, at this point in, in modern American history, financial wealth is the the holy grail of status. You know, people who have lots of money are seen to be better than people who don't have lots of money, regardless of other qualities and characteristics. And that status is set by your friend in marketing, you know? So your friend in marketing is trying to get me to buy things that I don't need. And there's been ever-increasing inequality in terms of, of sure. uh, right. the economics because, of it. Because if we actually got to a point where there was even something getting remotely close to true social equality in terms of access to resources or access to individuals or how we're treated or how we're seen, I think that would violate some really deeply profound drive within us. And so I think that's why it takes a lot of meditation and, and overshooting our, our <laughs> internal drives to do that. Because, but I think, the, I think who sets it is the challenge in that, that the, who sets what matters are the people that are thought to matter, and then it just sits in circles on itself. Well, it seems to be diffuse, but unfortunately, the system now seems to be you're driving itself toward this sort of uh, financial inequality. Mm -hmm. There's also the problem that the people at the bottom, like the untouchables you mentioned, uh, suffer health-wise, yeah. right? The, the people at the lowest rung, uh, the underclass, have more hypertension, diabetes, obesity, et cetera. And uh, I think both the sense of injustice, that some, the top 0.1% uh, have so much of the, of the money, and uh, that, the, that the underclass are, are very ill drives some policymakers to want to do something about it. And it's pretty challenging, because I think if we take anything from our conversation today, it's hard to say exactly, well, what is driving this, right? right? If we really had a great sense of it, we might be able to do a better job of trying to fix yeah. it. Right now, it's kind of been a little bit ham-fisted, I think. 
Yeah, I'm glad you raised this point about health, and I think this also holds in the primate king kingdoms, right? That, you know, to be on the bottom of a hierarchy ain't good for you. Uh, and Sapolsky's very strong on this, I think, and it's true in human societies as well. It's complicated, though, in the, in, I mean, James, you're talking about setting the hierarchy, and I grant you that to some degree that happens, that the Brahmins, you know, uh, control the rules. But we go back to our point of departure, and Warner said that, you know, that, uh, that hierarchy, or rather status, is not something that we give ourselves. It's granted or it's conferred. And I would, you know, bring Weber back into it and say, you know, there is a distinction between status and wealth. I think that in our culture, status and wealth are closer together than they are in a lot of places, um, and that's problematic. Um, but one can imagine, uh, I mean, even, even today, one can imagine somebody of, like I said at the beginning, of, of immense wealth and power, but not a lot of status, not a lot of social approbation. Um, and so I think maybe, you know, what it takes then, and what's so hard about this, is it takes not only good laws, right, or, or, or sort of you know, redistribution, but a change of values, right? If we begin to value uh, and reward and grant status to uh, people who do other things besides accumulate fortunes and dubious means. Uh, that's, that's a way to change as well. And you know, maybe that's, maybe well, that's coming. Right. And that, that's why it's contextual, I think, is that the, the, there, if the, we make a general assumption that these hierarchies will exist and that there will be a ranking, whether uh, sort of organically or externally, there will be some ranking in any context. The, what differs is what is what are those rankings based on? Based upon, and if they are based on some really simplistic, basic biological uh, differences, then we're just looking at physical strength and or speed or agility or things like that. In a much more complex technological society, then those things no longer become as important, and we look to other things. And I think, I think that. Your point is exactly right, which is that we, whoever we are, I, I suppose that's all of us, so let's do something. We get to decide what matters. And if we as a society say that it's not money and it's not stuff and it's not all these sort of superficial adornments, but instead it's the degree to which you help others. It's the degree to which you are um, a contributing member of, of social justice uh, reform, things like that. The, I think at the end of the day, from a purely objective point of view, we would see that the hierarchy would fall into place and whoever is the most giving, the most generous, and the best social justice reform advocate will become the highest ranking individual and the greedy bastard will be at the bottom. But that would require something, some mechanism by which there is a, a push for that to take mm -hmm. place. And I think that's the challenge is that at the moment, because society attributes status and rank and power and, and access to money or uh, some elevated position in society, which tends to be relatively superficial. And I don't mean to say humans are terrible, but I just think we, we tend to lean towards whatever's easiest. Then to change that would require either a massive groundswell from the, the disenfranchised so much so that it could actually overturn the status quo, huh? um, or uh, 
a, a decision based on those in power to say, you know what, let's shift this, and instead of liking people like me, we're going to like different types of people. And that, that seems difficult for a lot of people to, to do, to actually sacrifice their own self-interest or their own position to change what defines those positions. Wow. <laughs> there's a, there's, just to go back to the sort of commercial aspect of it and the marketing aspect of uh, designing st status systems. Um, I wonder whether, you know, earlier when, David, when you were talking about what comes around to being coolness, like being sufficiently or adequately nonchalant about your status helps. But then you went on to say, yes, but there are some people who are really obviously driven and we give them credit, even though they, don't, they seem to be striving too much. And anyway, I take from, I agree with everything you said, but I take from it that it's really quite a complex thing. I mean, it's not easy to say, well, that's a good thing and that's a bad thing. I'm reminded when Al Gore was made fun of, I think on Saturday Night Live, this reminds me of that comment of yours, and apparently his handler said, Al, you gotta be much cooler, you know, like, look like you're more hip. And he went and did that, and everyone pi immediately picked up on it and said, you're just a big doofus. You know, now you're trying hard, we're, we really, we're now you're really lost status with us. Anyway, um, if, if there is this um, complexity to it, I'm afraid what's happening with the people who market or handle a lot of the people who are seeking status, politicians I'm thinking of in particular, the, the the keywords and the things that they're told these track well are very simple. And I, I submit they're too simple. <laughs> and things like knowing when someone is likely to kiss up and kick down, which is a really terrific phrase, mm -hmm. cap capturing that someone's striving too hard and is really not a good, decent person, that sort of thing would be really useful to sort of highlight more than I think it is being highlighted yeah. now. And of course this starts at the earliest age, right? It starts with our children. And, you know, uh, I, so I remember, I love the story, it's find a way into a book at some point, but I went to um, junior high in uh, California in the 1970s. And the school was uh, built on a hill, and there were four levels, and everyone had lockers on those four levels, and the top lockers and bottom levels. Well, there was a classic linear status hierarchy in that <laughs> junior high like you've never seen, starting on D level and going to A level. And all the cool, popular sports people were on D level, top lockers, and then grade below on the bottom locker. And then it went to C, and all the way to A, where the people got beaten up and pushed around and whatnot. My point is that kids, and teens in particular, are brutal. Right, uh, and in, and they value status in often the most crude way. Right, maybe that's not giving them enough credit. I think there are ways in which teens push back in creative ways, but there's a popular set, and and that's often and then then that gets exploited in social media, uh, in the as you say the crudest ways, and then then we create a whole society of people who are posturing for likes and and, and dislikes uh, in ways that may not be good for uh, the society as a whole. Want to open up if people have any questions? This you'd be good happy woman to entertain them. Dying to say something for a long time. So, uh, Would you come up to the mic? <laughs> if you'd like to, I didn't or call whoever you wants out, to. But, uh, you have a very expressive uh, face. Where were you in California in 1970? Monterey. Uh, oh, Monterey. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I was in Berkeley. Ah, that's where I went to college, so good for you. It was different when you got there. Yeah, <laughs> it was. But hey, there was a little Berkeley left, so. Uh, was yeah. there a little left? Yeah. Anyway, number one, I think. 
structure has to change in order for who has status and not. That's a very basic thing. And, um, and, that's, and as far as what causes a revolution, do you know Chambers who wrote Revolutionary Change? No, that was a while ago. But anyway, um, that was very good. And it takes a group of people that are so miserable and they see someplace else where the miserable people are able to make a change and that helps, you know, that, like that's what happened in the 19th century in Europe. Um, then being cool, I think that was very interesting. And, um, you know, people would say they act cool and everybody's going to come to them wondering what they have to give or what, what did you mean by that? And also, what did you mean by referring to Avatel, Brunel? Oh, I meant, I mean, well, I guess what I was trying to there's. Pardon me. I guess what I was trying to say is that you know it's it's sort of a. This is this is this is a side comment, but there there was. Um, there was a saying in like like. Uh, among like sex workers and pornographic stars in the eighties, you know, when the porn industry, when, when a certain level of the porn industry really got started and they, and they would say the difference between us and the other Hollywood, meaning, you know, meaning mainstream Hollywood, the difference between us and the other Hollywood is we don't have to fuck anyone to get a job. <laughs> and what they were trying to say was that in, is, was that in porn, right? If you if you were if you were reliable if you showed up on time if you were like drug and alcohol free you would always get work, whereas in mainstream Hollywood everything was based on these like mm. you know on these deferred promises and vague you know the kind of vague I'll advance your career if you do X yada 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 whereas the transactions were perfectly clear mm. in the in you know in the pornographic film industry like all you had to do was be a reliable employee and it was fine. So the reason the reason I'm bringing that up is that it you know the way the way being a graduate student you know or any kind of precarious faculty works in the U.S. <laughs> right or the way being for instance you know like the way being um, the way being a sort of young employee uh, especially you know a young female employee or you know in in the in the art world or in the movie business. Um, there's, there's also there, the, the imbalances. The, what you have to do to get ahead is so unclear, and the metrics are so vague, and they're so wrapped up in cultural capital. So, of like being the, yeah. you know, being the favorite graduate student. Like how, how many, how much dry cleaning do I have to pick up for you? Even though that's technically not my job, nor should it be. Um, if I want to get really good recommendations, you know, when I go on the market, so the answer the, is a lot. <laughs> so that's that's so that that that's what I was basically basically these culture industries really operate off of a lot of yeah a lot of promises and a lot of deferral. And don't you feel that today we don't have a structure? You know, it's a free for all in a way. It, where? All over. As you suggested, Hollywood, and I was in Berkeley during the 60s when they integrated the schools, there was no structure, so all these cultures were thrown together, and nobody really knew how to behave. It was very, it's, and I think that's what's happening today. Anyway, thank you all very much. <laughs> thank you. And I loved your referring to the pyramid of Maslow. <laughs>
I'll just talk down to this. Um, we just thought we the real uh, tallest man. Yeah, I'm no longer right? the tallest person <laughs> in the room. Well, I think he is, right? Um, I spent decades, actually, in the field of marketing. Okay. And I was struck by what Mr. Burke said, that um, uh, you know, there is a science to products and branding and all of that. But the, the really, um, and so therefore my own professional interest was in consumer choice. Why do people choose mm. a product or you know, anything that you can think of? Um, all of that is conferred by the consumer. Uh, a brand doesn't have its own status. Uh, you know, it, it varies by person. So I guess what I'm saying is um, don't take this as cynical, but you know, to a certain extent it is a scheme because branding science, marketing science is very, very advanced. And so I asked the question, why do people want to, you know, I mean, we just walk right into it. You could call this a first world problem, but it probably isn't even that. Um, why do people want status? Why do they want prestige as it's, as it's exemplified in the, the physical thing? How you look, the watch you wear, is it a fast car that you drive? I don't know, but um, how, my question is, how do we unbundle that and how do you stop this in a caring world? It, it shouldn't be so important, but I don't really see a way to stop it. I don't either. <laughs> but what's interesting about what you're bringing up is the world of the future for psychology is neuroscience. So in other words, what happens that makes me feel emotionally somewhat differently, and if it's got sugar in it, I'm going to really feel great. But what, that feeling, then, is what I want to repeat. Right. And that creates the cycle. So the more that you can create that, the better, so to speak, in terms of it. So. But there's also, there's always a really interesting, I mean, this moment feels a little bit like, you know, like the late... 60s relative to brands and products, which is to say, you have these you have these really lovely because because it, it tracks with tech, the marketing tracks with technology, right? And there's there are these moments, and the technology creates its own new evaluators of status, you know. So when you look at like when you look at big corporations, you know, trying you know like like stumbling in like amazing and hilarious ways trying to do Twitter. You know, where like they the, like 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 the brands just wind up discrediting themselves by again seeming too eager to please and too thirsty, and right. you you want you wind up with these little like, you know, like a moment where you can reset the hierarchies, even if you can't actually undo hierarchy per se, but where like they just they just can't read the situation properly. And, uh, you know, what's interesting about what you bring up is what has just occurred in MSNBC. I'm sure nobody in this room watches that channel, but I do. <laughs> is there any other? The Donnie Deutsch Show oh. on Saturday night. Now, is applying what you're an expert in to politics. I don't know if it's ever been done quite that way before. Mm. So I think there's going to be some interesting learning that can come from that, at least. I hope there will be. It better be, or I'm not going to watch it. He's a very smart guy. Very smart guy. With lots of experience in that, and um, it does apply to that, yeah. you know, yeah, to does. politics. It, it really does. does. Yeah. It's a little worrisome, by the way, but... <laughs> Something you said that was worrisome uh, in terms of neuroscience, and, and I don't know anything about neuroscience, but my understanding is that 
we're getting closer and closer. Getting closer and closer at the closer. moment, we're mapping, but we still don't know what a thought is. We know yeah, that neurons right. fire. We're not beyond but the we'll mapping. But we'll get there. Yet. We'll get there. We'll get there. And oh, yeah. my concern is that I don't see, and I don't mean to be cynical, because I think human history is full of um, extraordinary examples of humans doing extraordinarily positive good things. I would say on balance, though, when we look across the trajectory of human history, I would say we're much more inclined towards, uh, shall we say, unjust things or unpleasant things or marginalizing or oppressing because oh. that tends to be the easier way to do it. And I, my so concern... So you've read Sapiens also, huh? Sorry? You've read the book Sapiens as well. I haven't huh? read it. I'm supposed to read it. it. Is, I'll yes, read it next right. time. Get but, with it. But my short, <laughs> Sorry, I want to let you have your question, but the, the point that I would make is that I think as we go forward, as we learn more about how the human brain works, I don't think that that necessarily is going to, it, it will provide the opportunity to do all sorts of things. My concern is that it will also provide the opportunity to manipulate uh, more so than, than other. And I don't mean to keep picking on marketing, but, but I, I'm sure we're marketing lots of good things, but on, on balance, the, 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 the economy is built on my buying things that I don't need. And if I have a choice between two things, the marketers are going to try to convince me to buy one thing over the other, and that's what it's all about, as opposed to saying, you know, anyway, sorry, please. Thank you for a <laughs> very provocative discussion. Uh, first of all, a disclaimer, and I particularly thought about this yesterday while we were celebrating this tragedy on the beach in France. Uh, I grew up in Germany mm. under Hitler in the 1930s, and I had a fantasy that if women were running the world, Maybe we wouldn't go into these terrible wars. Well, the last 60 years have tested that hypothesis, and I'm not sure that it stands up. But in, especially in uh, non-human primates, there's some evidence that testosterone levels and ranking in their leadership hierarchy uh, makes a great deal of difference. Mm -hmm. Apparently, that is not true in females. Apparently, female hormones don't correlate at all. Uh, what is your reaction to that, and uh, what does it presage for the future? So there's a lot of parts of that to respond to. Um, my, I, I don't look at hormonal levels in the, in the work that I do, but I'm familiar with some of the research, and absolutely right, in baboons um, and a couple of other species where it's been tested, there is a clear correlation between uh, testosterone in male rankings when you look at, at higher... I should add that there are plenty of species in which there really isn't a, a good metric for ranking males because groups are unimale. So if there's only one male in the group, mm. he doesn't have a rank. He doesn't have a relative position to other males. There's only a dichotomous, there's a ba basically you're in charge of the group or you're not. And, and whereas in a lot of mixed male groups or multi-male groups, we see this sort of somewhat linear hierarchy from top to bottom. And in those species where it's been examined absolutely correctly that there is a correlation in that testosterone levels track. The question, which is interesting, and a couple of people have raised it, is that it might not be the direction we think in that uh, it, it made sense at first that, oh, high levels of testosterone, which are associated with aggression and, uh, for want of a better term, confidence and willingness to escalate and things like that, would predispose an individual to rising in the ranks. But it actually seems 
to possibly go the other direction and that as rank increases, testosterone increases. Mm. Um, and so the, 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 my limited understanding <coughs> is that the directionality is not necessarily clear, yeah. but there's definitely an association. Female mammals also produce testosterone, but they produce much, much smaller levels. It's associated with the same things as it is in males and sex drive and things like that. But other hormones tend in, in biologically female individuals tend to uh, drive the same sort of thing. So cortisol sort of takes up some of the slack for testosterone in biologically female individuals. So it gets complicated. Um, and your other point, which I lost track of, Somewhere along matriarchy, the also. Yeah. Oh, in 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 um, matriarchal groups rather than uh, patriarchal groups or, or male dominated groups, and we can take it outside of primates. Then, and we look at the female bonded groups in things like elephants, um, have very clear matrilineal uh, hierarchies, and those hierarchies are respected behaviorally. You see who gets to drink water first, who leads the group outside of things, and who communicates with whom. Um, but the level of physical aggression is lower. And, and suggesting that, and, and I, th I think that's the thing, if we're looking for hope for the human species, which it sounds like many of us are, uh, which is a weirdly cynical thing, because to say we, we hope for the best suggests that we think it's actually unlikely, or at least uh, we are up against some odds. But I think that when we look for, uh, we look for models to look for, because that's the great thing about being human. We might be equipped with some horribly in, incomplete <laughs> set of genes and, and gray matter, uh, but we have the capacity to mimic things and pretend to be certain things. That I think one of the only sort of uh, cogent ideas that came out of all this for me was that, that um, we we recognize that this might be a natural propensity towards these hierarchies and this oppressive marginalization structure, but we have the capacity to want to do something different. And that's the hard work. We recognize that, that, that some egalitarian society where we all pick flowers and share one another's food is really, really goes against so many of our basic internal drives, but we have the capacity to do it. And how can we do that? And I think looking for a framework and a way of defining that. So I think looking at matrilineal species and how they do it, because it's not to say that aggression and violence isn't part of that, but it's much more based on um, cooperative behavior and the risk is the same. So in, in some cases, if, if I violate the norms of hierarchy currently, I risk physical pain, and that's going to be my motivation. But equally so, even if there's no risk of physical pain, if I risk rejection from the group, I lose all the benefits from the group, and that's a massively uh, important component to my own survival. And so I think shifting our, uh, our whole definition of status, our whole uh, uh, way that status is achieved, it might be achieved by more cooperative, sort of beneficial um, structures instead of violent or aggressive ones. And I, and I think it's important to, you know, to go back to this point that status is culturally configured and so it does yep. change, right? There is hope. One can change <laughs> what, what is valued and what is not. And you know, there are enough people in this room who've lived long enough on the earth to know that that happens quite dramatically uh, in the space of a generation or two. So um, you know, I take some hope in that. Um, but at the same time, I go back to your point, James, and I, I you know, and, and Warner made it too, that 
you know, I mean, the, the nexus between psychology and marketing goes back to the early 20th century and trying to figure out how people feel and what makes them feel good or happy, I work on happiness in another, another hat, um, it's, it's a, a long quest and we're getting closer and closer to figuring that out. And I think that should really worry us because um, it's not just about marketing, it is about politics too, mm -hmm. right? And clearly that's all that, that line has been obliterated. Um, and that, that opens up all kinds of difficult questions, but maybe that'll be the next session, right? Uh, Thank you. Uh, maybe we should put in a grant to get blood levels at the White House. And the That's it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you write it, I'll sign it. <laughs> I have a way we can get the blood from them, too, by the way. Well, I think that, unless there are any other questions, I want to thank all the panelists for a really stimulating conversation. I think you also all came out really pretty even, so. <laughs> Thanks go. again, that was great. <laughs>